It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I know many of you, and some of you don't know me, and that may be to your benefit. You can make a decision as we go along this morning. This morning, it is a privilege for me to open a psalm with you that has been with me for a very long time, Psalm 27. If you would turn there with me as I read it, uh, then we'll take a moment and pray together and enter into the Word. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me. I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple, for He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me, answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. We pray with me. Father, this morning, we thank you that your word is yours. This morning, we thank you that you speak and you have spoken. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you live in your people, that you bring the word to life within us, renewing our thoughts, renewing our hearts, invigorating our steps that we may follow after Christ. This morning, Lord, let not my own shortcomings, my own sinfulness hinder whatever you would declare. We acknowledge together, confess it, it is your word, and it is you we seek this morning. It is you that we need. And so, O oh God, come and tear the scales from our eyes, the stops from our ears, the hardness of our hearts, that we may taste and see your goodness yet more fully this day, and to declare that same goodness to a world in need. In Jesus' name, amen. It's unclear the occasion of the writing of this psalm. I've always thought or picked up in it threads that it seems to me, this is Kron's opinion, Kron's wondering, as a professor of mine used to say, perhaps Kron's sanctified imagination. 
that this psalm was written by David when Saul was hunting him in the wilderness. The themes in it seem to make sense to me, although we don't know. That's how I've always processed the psalm. It starts off with three, uh, three verses that say, fear, afraid, and fear. And I want to start off by talking with you about being afraid. Years ago, I was sitting with one of my kids who looked at me one day and said, Daddy, you know what the funny thing about fear is? It's really frightening. And I was like, son, you are on to something today. Fear is probably one of the most damaging things we experience this side of heaven. Fear is an anxious feeling caused by usually an anticipation of something bad that is about to happen. It is driven by an uncertainty about tomorrow. Now, in this psalm, David is oriented toward warfare language. Some of you may be military. I'm curious, how many of you have served in the military? A, a fair number of you. Some of those who raise your hand, you may actually know what it is like to be encircled. You may know what it's like to have incoming fire come your way, to have physical threat of harm in a place of conflict. Most of us really don't. So when we enter this psalm, I want to invite you to wrestle with it. You and I live in a world of conflict whether we see it or not. The scriptures tell us that we live in a place of spiritual warfare. The weapons of our warfare have divine power by which we can demolish strongholds. And on the other hand, we read Paul saying that our, we wage battle not against the seen but the unseen in Ephesians 6, the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. We wage war, if we read Romans, against our flesh at war within us. And all of these places drive home a desperate need for the shelter of a Savior. And yet, often, I think, in our traditions, some of you have probably heard me say or seen me say before that Spock may have been the first Reformed theologian. Let us live long and prosper. Our emotional world is unimportant and shall never be trusted. And yet, when we read the Psalms, there's a very different flavor invested in them. Let me do a little brain structure with you for a moment as a counselor. When I stepped into my closet this morning, I had to decide what to wear. Now, most of us don't realize it, but when you're thinking what tie should you put on or what shirt or which shoes, as you make a preference in your life, you're actually using two parts of your brain. If we could plug you into a brain scan called a PET scan and trail you through your closet or into your drawers, we would see as you decide what to wear, the front of your head light up. We call it the prefrontal cortex. It's where you think. It's information. It's data. Hey, blue jacket, red tie, good shoes, information. The right side of your brain, a big part of it, is called the limbic system. It's where you process all things emotional. When you do something as simple as decide what to wear, both parts of your brain go together. Both will light up. If I take Dennis out for lunch and I plug his uh, head into my portable PET scanner, which doesn't exist, and I go, Dennis, I know that you're challenged in math, brother. Tell me what three plus three is. And Dennis will simply say six. And the only thing that's going to light up is going to be there. But when we walk in life, God has created us to use both parts of our head in tandem. They give us different kinds of information that we desperately need to learn what to do with. We are more than human thinkings, 
We are more than human doings. We are human beings. And the emotional part of our life is that being place where we learn and experience connection to God, ourselves, and others. Peter Scazzaro, in a wonderful book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, wrote these words. Most of us will go to our graves living out others' expectations of us or our perception of those expectations. And this does violence to our relationship with God, ourselves, and others. I think that Scazzaro is deeply onto something that is biblical, and we can read it in the Scriptures, and I'll do this for you in a moment, and we can see it lived out in our lives. The first word in the Hebrew text to describe you and me after the fall of man is actually an emotional word. Did you know that? It's fear. Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And then if you opened an electronic commentary, uh, I should have had more coffee this morning. Excuse me. (laughs) An electronic concordance, and tag the words fear, afraid, anxious, you'll pop up hundreds of usages. It is endemic to fallen humanity. And yet it is a place where often I would say to you in the church, we see somebody who is anxious, we see somebody who is afraid, and we tell them here is a verse, or you need to believe God better, and in that way, shut it down, which is a mirror often of what happened in the fall of man. Adam says, I'm afraid, and rather than hearing it as saying, I need to turn back to the one from whom I am now disconnected, he heard it as saying, protect, withdraw, and hide. And then often we do the same mirrored thing in the evangelical church, but we come back to the psalm, and I want you to hear David doing something radically different. Look at the word with me. First, let's ask this question, whom shall I fear? Well, we start off here and we read these words, that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Next, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Evildoers may assail me. War break out against me. An army encamp. What shall I fear? Now, it's interesting language. If you take this psalm as an act of worship, which it is, and you read how David is processing what's happening, he is hearing his fear point him at the Lord himself rather than saying, God, change my circumstances. He is entering in, in the turmoil of his experience and where he is, into the shelter of relationship with his king the Lord God himself. Biblically, the word fear is an emotion expressed by man at the entrance of sin. It not only means emotionally to be afraid, but it can also be used almost ironically as that of shooting arrows at a person. When fear comes, we feel this constricted thing come upon us. Some of you may have had the privilege of a panic attack at some point in your life or intense anxiety. And I use the word privilege loosely, of course. But there is a sense of constriction. I can't breathe. I am overwhelmed. That is an idea that is embedded in the word fear. But over against that, 
in verse 1, David wrote those, these words, my light and my salvation. The Hebraic idea of salvation here is interesting. It means to be brought out into an open way, a widening, a loss of constriction. There is freedom of movement, if you will. And so David is saying, though I am afraid, I hear that fear pointing me back to the one that I need. And in this cry and in this prayer, he's never saying, stop it. He's hearing it tell him, turn to his God. Let me illustrate that as a parent. A small child is afraid in the night. What do they do? They hear their fear until we tell them it's immature to actually ask for help. And they come to us. Thunder and lightning. A child looks for mom or dad. They hear their fear and they say, and daddy will I trust as they come and they grab a leg or as they crawl in bed and as they cling. And what do you and I do? We tell them, stop it. There's nothing to be afraid of. Go back to your bed, right? Well, you may have tried that once or twice where you get really tired of it. But that frightened place the child knows is pointing them into relationship and in the shelter of relationship with one who is greater than they are, what happens? Peace begins to enter. Hope begins to come. Not because the circumstance changed, but because the one to whom they are anchored is now present, greater than they are. David writes that he, God, is the defense of his life, a stronghold, or literally, he is my place of safety when I am frightened. And his word choices keep echoing this idea of safety. You could read, read in verse 3, he says at the end, the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now in our Western way, we tend to think of that as, I'm going to trust I'm going to summon up this place of confidence inside of me. I know what is true, live long and prosper, and I will not have these difficult feelings. No, you've misread your psalm. David is writing, the war against rise against me. In him I will find safety. And there is confidence in him, not the removal of the circumstance as that war is rising against me. You see, David's heart keeps moving him in the turmoil of his soul and of his mind back to his connection with the Father. You can watch this across the Bible. Adam in the fall says, afraid, naked, hide. He hears that same word for fear and he disconnects from God. You hear Adam, I mean, you hear David, the man after God's own heart, and he cries out in his turmoil, moving toward God. You can go to Gethsemane, the God-man, who says of himself, my soul is overwhelmed within me, distressed to the point of death. Perfect faith not rescuing him from great turmoil. But he owns it, and he hears its unfallen meaning, saying, I need to be connected. Peter, James, John, be with me. Father, Father, any other way. David here is modeling the life in the gospel to you and me. A hope that rises above the circumstance of the moment. Look again at the psalm with me. Pick up at verse 4. 
David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he, listen, who's doing the action now? He will hide me in the day of trouble. He will conceal me. He will lift me up upon a rock. Picture the floods going by as you stand on a high stone. These are the actions of a father rescuing a child who has turned to him. You see, whom shall I fear was our first question. The second thought is him, not them. You see, your fear and my fear points to something. The deep, powerful, and profound need to be connected to the only one in whom there is the security of a permanent safety lost in the fall of man. He will hide me. He will conceal me. He will lift me. And as an outcome, my head shall be lifted up above all that comes against me. Now, do you hear what's happening, though? He's not saying in any way in this psalm, so I cried out to the Lord, and then I opened my eyes, and magic happened, and poof, all of my enemies and all the turmoil of my circumstance evaporated. It's not what he's writing, is it? I don't know about you. You look a lot like me, more or less. Two arms, two legs. Some of your faces are a little bigger. Some are a little smaller. But I would bet if we could Google into your, hack into your prayer life, just as though you could hack into mine, we would find a group of people who often are saying, God, change my circumstance rather than, Lord, I need you. And in finding you, I am changed in my circumstance. You see, men and women, we could say it to you this way. We live in a culture that defines our life and our God from the outside in. And then in our turmoil, we go up and define whether God is good and try to shape our identity in a backwards motion outside in up the presupposition of the scriptures of david is life starts above comes down and defines me changes me freeing me to live in the reality of a fallen world outwardly anchored to the one who has called me heavenward fear him put him above the circumstance not them. You see, I think many of us do something that David doesn't really do here. Let me see if I can unpack an idea a little bit for you. We, it is easy to use God to avoid God. Let me see if I can explain that to you. Uh, some of you know my story. I, I grew up in a train wreck. Uh, I frequently can be heard saying, you can give my family tree a swift kick, but you've got to get out of the way fast. When the nuts fall, they are really big. You can't find somebody in my family system that is not either depressed, anxious, or medicated. That is, they're um, imbibing something to address their anxiety and their depression. 
biologically, there's a genetic break in my family. Most of us don't produce some of the neurochemicals that we need. And life can get very overwhelming when you just biologically can't produce what you need in your head. And I can find myself readily, when I, especially when I am exhausted and I haven't tended to my physical needs properly that way, go into a place where I am anxious or overwhelmed rather readily. Do any of you have the spiritual gift of being anxious? You know, if you're not sure, ask somebody sitting near you. They'll explain to you that you do and that your neuroticness is not experienced as a gift to them and your family. And what I tend to want to do is this. I get afraid of something that is coming, real or perceived. And I start to say, God, I'm going to pray against that thing. But the foci of my attention is, God, change this thing. God, do you see what's going to happen? Lord, this is going to be awful. Uh, some of you have had children move away. My first is about to move all of 18 miles away, and I'm, I'm a mush at heart. My 20-year-old, my rather, is moving to Norfolk from Virginia Beach to go to ODU, and it's going to live with some Campus Crusade kids. And I'm trying to figure out how actually I can practice a failure to launch because I can't bear the fact that my daughter is moving out of my house. So I find myself feeling overwhelmed by this idea. And rather than wanting initially to engage it and say, Lord, you are good, thank you for my daughter, thank you that even though she leaves, it's not an echo of the leaving I experienced as a child. I want to avoid it and ask God to help me feel better. You see? Rather than realizing and owning that God has given me more than one way to know things, I feel things and I think things. My feelings are not wrong. It's hard for a daughter that I love to watch her move out. And I need to learn to hear my fear as David does and say, Father, my heart does grieve. Hold me above the flood of this loss. Not God help me feel nothing while I have it. You see, therein is a rub I want to encourage you to wrestle with. Many Christians go to turmoil with their emotional life thinking, I'm struggling emotionally because I'm not believing God well enough. Instead of hearing their turmoil as simply saying, you need to be connected to the one who will do for David the same to you. He will hide you, conceal you, and lift you. If you and I learn the practice of turning to God rather than using him to avoid him. You see, there's a purposeful thing here now that David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, verse 4, one thing that I seek after. There's an interesting contrast between David and his son Solomon. In 1 Kings 3, God has appeared to Solomon, and, he, and Solomon only asks for wisdom. He doesn't ask for wealth and riches and everything else. And God says, because you haven't asked for these others, I will grant you wisdom, great request in essence. And Solomon becomes known as the wisest man who ever lived. Just forget that part where he ends up with 700 plus wives. It's just confusing when you think the application of wisdom. But, but he doesn't ask 
what his dad asks. One thing, I need you. I need you. I would suggest that Solomon asked for a good thing. David cries out through the years of his life for the most ultimate of all things. I need you. You alone. And you will hide me. And in you, where there will be shelter for my life. Part of where I'm going with that, men and women, is don't be afraid of your emotional life. The Lord Jesus had difficult emotions, and perfect faith didn't rescue him from them. David was a man after God's own heart, and he had difficult emotions, and they pointed him as surely as they pointed Jesus to the presence of the Father, a hope, an anchor for the soul. I titled this message with you, Never Abandoned. You'll see it here now. Pick up verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. Now let me hit pause right there. You don't pick this one up in the English. That seek right there is not directed specifically at David. It's to all of us. It's plural command in the Hebrew text right there. So David is reiterating that which God has spoken to you and to me and to all of his people throughout time. Seek his face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation, my safe place. For my father and my mother, they have forsaken me. They have abandoned me. But the Lord will always take me in. Always. Pick that text up with me for a moment. A child seeks his parent's face. One of the first things a child does when they get their eyes open when they're four to six weeks old is what? They, if you have never had a child, they start looking for the eyes of their parents. I want to be connected to you. Let me see your face. I remember my daughter at times when she'd be struggling. I would want to scoop her up and I'd hold her like this. And she always had a strong neck. That's another subject. But she always had a strong neck. And she would push back so that she could look at my face at times. Because she wanted to look at my face. David is identifying that to you and me here. He is saying, I am going to seek your face. Don't hide your eyes from me because that is what would actually undo me. I don't care about the enemies. If I see your face, I don't care if people don't like me. I don't care if I run out of money. I don't care if I am sick or my spouse is ill or my children are in turmoil. In reference to this, if I can see your face, 
I can walk in the reality of a fallen life with the hope of heaven and not hide from my turmoil and know the sweetness of being heard and known by the one who sees me, the one whom I most desperately need and whose face I must have if I am to have hope this side of heaven. And so, men and women, our Father looks at us and says, seek my face, look at me. Seek my face. Now, quit asking for all the other things. It's not that you shouldn't, but the ultimate thing, know me. Seek my face. And life flows from there. In Isaiah 49, 15, God speaking of himself says, a nursing mother may forget the child at her breast. Now, that's pretty hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it, moms? But God is saying, even they might forget, but I will not. I cannot forget your face. The height of the crucifixion, the drama of the cross. Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some translations, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Same language of 27.10. My mother and father have forsaken or abandoned. Similar idea. At the cross of glory, Jesus knew the abandonment of a father for you and for me. He was abandoned for us that a father, our father who art in heaven would never turn his eyes from us. J.I. Packer put it this way, the crown jewel of our salvation is adoption wherein the father says, you are mine, I see What shall we do with this? Look again at the psalm. Pick up at verse 11. I don't get this by myself. What does David do? Teach me your way, O Lord. In other words, I need you. Show this to me because I'm not going to move this way on my own. Teach me your way. Lead me on a level path. Give me not up to the will of my enemies. What is he doing? David is walking out a repenting faith here. Lord, I believe, grow my faith. Lord, I need you. I confess this to you. Come, Lord, come. Teach me that I may depend on you more. Hear your word. Know your way. Lead me on it. Embedded here is the clear idea that David knows his need for his Father and for his God. So I might just stop to you this day. Your fears and anxieties and worries in this life are simply markers of your need for God Almighty, for his face. Seek that 
verse 12, verse 13. David writes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Practice believing. Practice that heart turning to him saying, you, O Lord, are my rock and my salvation. Your face I need. Practice. 1 John 1, 6, John wrote these words. He said, because they walked in the darkness, they practiced the, because they did not practice the truth, they walked in the darkness and their deeds were evil. The word practice and walk are identical. Same word. John was writing to you and me saying, listen, you have to practice walking in the light if you are going to know the light. You have to practice turning your heart and your eyes to his face if you are going to increasingly know the joy and the presence of his face in your life over your circumstances. My soul cries out, I want to fix it and have no more turmoil. I'm a fallen man. What my soul does need is the certainty that I have a father who will not abandon me or forsake me. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen and amen. You pray with me. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word that is true because it's your word. We thank you for your word that is rich, for you are rich in mercy and grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you that on a cross you cried out, why have you abandoned me? That we may cry out, he will never abandon me. I pray for my friends gathered here for myself. Today, Holy Spirit, will you anchor us to that great and powerful present hope that in the gospel, our Father knows our names and that he is kind and he is mighty. In Jesus' name, amen.